3: Hey Humanists, this is Nathan Gilmore. Before we get to today's episode, I want to remind you that on January 19th through 21st, 2017, I'm going to be in Redondo Beach, California, with a number of podcasters, including Homebrew Christianity's Trip Fuller, for the Theology Beer Camp. If you're going to be in the area, you can join us there. You can go to theologybeercamp.com to get information on it, to register. And while you're there, if you use the code blitzen for jesus that's the reindeer's name, BLITZEN, the number 4. And then Jesus, I hope you know how to spell that one. You can get a hundred dollars off of the registration, which includes uh, one meal each day at a minimum, uh, plus lots of swag, as Trip Fuller calls it. I assume there will be some pint glasses involved in that, as well as some books, as well as an opportunity to hang out with a fairly small conference-style gathering talking about theology, trying to console Trip Fuller on the uh, last weekend of the Obama administration before the Trump presidency officially starts. At any rate, it promises to be a good time. I'd like to see as many of you there as we can. When you do go register, there will be a button there for which podcast you want to affiliate yourself with. The more people click on uh, Christian Humanist Podcast in that process, uh, the more Trip Fuller and the gang over at Homebrewed will know that you all came out to talk theology, enjoy some company, that sort of thing. So... I hope to see some of you there. I'd be thrilled to meet you in person. January 19th through 21st, the Theology Beer Camp. And now, on with our episode.
0: Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. This is our Christmas episode, so uh, welcome to it. We hope you enjoy it. With me, this fine, however the weather is where you are today, Michael, uh, is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you today?
1: I'm good, David. How are you?
0: Uh, pretty decent. So So cold warm
1: oh it's cold yeah bitterly okay. cold uh the weather report said the other day but i don't want to talk about the <laughs> weather because i know our listeners uh, have have told us that it's <laughs> aggravating to hear us talk about it I,
0: I i would be interested to know just how cold it has to get before a minnesotan says it's bitterly cold the
1: high was seven
0: yeah okay Ooh. that mm-hmm. counts uh, the woo that you heard was associate professor of English Nathan Gilmore at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you this morning, sir?
3: I am doing all right. I uh, turned in my grades for my uh, winter term class, so I've now taught five semesters this calendar year, the most that I've done in my career. So I thought wow. you were already on spring
0: break. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, the, the, the patented Gilmore accelerated timeline. <laughs> By this time next week, he will have a flying car.
4: <laughs> That's true
0: well, I think it'll be uh, a sleigh, uh, won't it Say what?
1: I think it'll be a sleigh oh,
0: out you weren't supposed to out him, Michael.
1: <laughs> <laughs> should all be glad that Santa Claus isn't Nathan Gilmore,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, all kinds of people getting cold in that point. <laughs>
1: I really think you should use some sort of cleaner form of energy to to uh, punish uh, disobedient children.
4: There you go. Oh, no, if blade. you're
1: Santa Claus, can I be the Krampus?
3: <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure I've accepted the role of Santa Claus yet. I, I want to note that.
1: <laughs> I saw a documentary about a guy who killed Santa and became Santa, and my impression was you don't get to choose. It just happens to you.
0: A, a doc, a docu- are, are you saying that I killed Santa? I... A documentary?
1: Didn't we all kill Santa, in a way?
3: Oh, goodness. <laughs> Man, Santa is
0: dead and we are his murderers. <laughs> well, Shout out I'm, I... who
1: killed Santa when, after all, it was you and me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm still enthralled about your notion of a new Santa appointing his cabinet. It's <laughs> true. Oh,
1: I don't have any Krampus experience. But I saw the trailer for that movie, so I think I pretty much get the gist of it. (laughs) Also, let's be honest, that'd be an excellent Krampus.
0: (laughs) Well, you'd be a much better Krampus than the guy that's Krampusing now. That hack.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, party politics.
0: Yeah. So, um, (laughs) now that we're all in a Christmas spirit, I guess... Esque, as I said at the end of our last episode, dear listeners, we're we're going to be turning uh, today in our Christmas episode to uh, Handel's Messiah, um, uh, George Friedrich Handel, uh, Handel, Handel, whatever I say, Handel, like like a thing that you turn. I've always said Uh, Handel too. Yeah, I don't know. He's German, though,
3: right? So yeah, yeah, we performed in England, so they would say it Handel. Yeah. Yeah. The
1: the, Dread, you know, the great influence on
3: point. Emmanuel Kant. <laughs> the, the English
1: make a point of mispronouncing all foreign words.
3: Yes.
0: <laughs> with, with joyful abandon.
1: Garage and fillet and all that stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah, a val- yeah, my 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 valet. Yeah. Will a lot of you are uh, having the opportunity to or already have had the opportunity to listen to Messiah, dear listeners, um, or some some portions thereof. It seems to be something that shows up at this season. So uh, you gentlemen, what is your experience with Messiah, um, having listened to it, attended it, maybe had a chance to sing in it? Nathan?
3: I have listened to recordings of it. I've never actually been to a live performance of Messiah uh, save for one Christmas in high school when we actually did a high school band arrangement of it. Uh, I was at the time playing baritone saxophone, and anyone who has uh, played or been around baritone saxophone players in high school, you know that we're basically tuba players who can occasionally play 16th notes. Uh, so, I mean, when I uh, honestly, every time. I thought time you were I tuba players like, with better weed. <laughs> well. I, I don't want to give away all the secrets, but to this day, when I hear the Hallelujah chorus, you know, you know, listening to it, prepping for this episode, what's going through my head is bum 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 because I played that over and over and over again in rehearsal, and now you know I can't even hear the choir anymore. I can't even hear anything that's actually in. The uh, oratorio performance, I can only hear the modified tuba line that I played oh so many times. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, the, uh, <laughs> that is the only uh, live music version of it that I'm familiar with. I have listened to a few recordings of it. Uh, and, of course, I mean, uh, this comes to mind just because of one of the Twilight Zone episodes, and I forget which podcast made this point, but uh, whenever something pleasant in the world happens... Someone is going to sing the word hallelujah, and it's going to be the four notes from Handel's oratorio. So uh, even if you're not even aware that this is part of an oratorio, someone in your life is going to sing hallelujah, and that's just going to be, ah, something good happened.
4: Yes.
1: It really belongs uh, up there with like the, the first four notes of Beethoven's fifth in terms of oh gosh, song, yeah. the pieces mm-hmm. that have been completely ruined by, uh, by commercials. <laughs>
3: Or dance it, it, of the it, it, sugar
1: plum fairies?
3: Oh gosh! Yeah. Like, like I can't, I can't hear, d- I can't
1: hear dance of the sugar plum fairies without picturing some kid sneaking downstairs <laughs> Christmas
3: Eve night. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's also one of those things. And Michael, I don't know if you uh, picked up this affectation when you were uh, an Orthodox catechumen, but I've had more than one, you know, insist that I pronounce all- Alleluia with five syllables and. uh I always just have to say no. Handel does it with four syllables. Handel wins.
4: <laughs> Handle would care.
3: How about you, Michael?
1: I also have never seen it or sang it or played the baritone saxophone during it. I, I just have a recording, <laughs> which I think I, I, I bought. Uh, Amazon had a deal a few years ago where you could get like 10 hours of classical christmas music for five bucks or something and it of course came along with it along with uh the nutcracker so that mm-hmm. that's my experience i this is not something i've spent an enormous amount of time with i spent mm. I, i've probably listened to it all the way through but i i have never like sat down and thought about it before uh david picked it for this episode hmm cool. I, I discovered it's pretty good
0: it is it is pretty good um I've uh, every Christmas I listen to at least part of it and and have for for a long 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 time I remember uh, our family had uh, cassette tapes of like like a best of cuz it's super long right yeah, it's, it's two like and a in, half hours Yeah it's not going to fit on one cassette tape um but the, the the sort of the some of the most known bits of it were were on there and uh, most of them from part one mm-hmm. um, I've never gotten a chance to attend a whole performance of it but on several occasions was at uh choir performances where they did um How Will You chorus um the, uh, um the the there shall be born unto uh, the, behold a virgin shall she conceive call us, his name emmanuel um for unto us a child is born right that 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 one Um, you know, so, so some of these I, I know, I know pretty, uh, pretty well, um, from having seen them in performance, but no, I've never seen the whole thing in performance. Um, I have a dim memory, a memory of at least practicing to sing the hallelujah chorus as part of my church's choir. I can't actually remember whether I, whether I made it all the way to actually singing it, but I, I, I do remember having, having learned the, the bass part. Um, of that, not,
3: not to be confused with the baritone saxophone part.
0: No, no, no. It's it's, it's the distinct <laughs> part. It's the distinct part. Um, there's some some overla- overlap in terms of like range, but other than that, um, I am now kicking myself for having missed um when uh, when I was living in uh, McPherson, Kansas, working when I was working at Central Christian College. Um, north of us, about thirty minutes north of us, is a little town called Lindsborg. That every year um, during uh, Easter week, they perform the entirety of Messiah and the entirety of the St. Matthew Passion. Wow! Yes, Um, and it is the oldest uh, the oldest continuance performance of either of those choral works in the United States. How be? Yeah, and they 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 have been doing it for 100 years plus.
1: That's uh that's something.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 I never got off of my duff to go. And now <laughs> and now I kick myself. So if you happen to be within range of Lindsburg, Kansas around Easter time dear listeners, just know that awaits you. Well, who is this George Friedrich Handel guy and he isn't the one who wrote the words. He just wrote the music. Uh, Charles Jennens was the librettist for for Messiah. Although the degree so, to
1: which you can say he wrote the words, I think, is pretty limited.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a fair point. Um, and along the way, you're probably going to have to tell us the difference between an opera and an oratorio. But but you know, give us some background, Michael.
1: First, a quote from Jan Swafford, whose "Vintage Guide to Classical Music" is my first source for all this stuff. George Friedrich Handel, whose art defines the grand and magisterial in music, was in his person fat and slovenly, gluttonous, bow-legged, bovine of expression. Often to be seen lurching around about the streets of London, muttering to himself in German like some rummy ship jumper. I couldn't. I couldn't not say that.
3: <laughs> so, so it's not, in other words, it's how you guys picture me at Disney World.
1: <laughs> Do you mutter to yourself in German?
0: Sometimes. He, um, he learned German just for the occasion.
1: There, there is no better language to mutter yourself in mutter yourself to in, uh, than in German. Um, Handel is the son of a German barber surgeon. Uh, his father didn't like music, so he had to learn and practice on a muted spinet in the attic. And this is the, of course, because of uh, the song We Need a Little Christmas, this is the time of year when we think about spinets. Mm hmm. Um, Finally, a duke found out that he was talented and paid for his lessons, and his father couldn't say no because he wasn't paying for them. And at age 12, he was considered a prodigy. He wrote his first opera in 1704. He was 19 years old. It was such a success that wow. the director of the Hamburg Opera Company drove Handel out of town.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so he ended up in Italy. Where he became famous doing these operas, and then he ended up in London, which is the city he's most associated with. And he became an English citizen in 1726. Hmm. He went broke doing these Italian operas in 1737 because the tastes of the public changed. Essentially, the if you know the if you know the opera, the Beggars' Opera by John Gay, which became the Three Penny Opera when Bertolt Brecht got a hold of it in the 20th century, um, mm-hmm. that that is taken to be the time when English people lost the taste for Italian operas. Um, once he goes broke, he has a paralytic stroke and a mental collapse, and everybody pretty much thought he was done, including himself. But instead of quitting altogether, he gave up on operas and started writing oratorios. So, what is the difference between those two things? Well, an oratorio has the epic scope and drama of an opera, but it's much cheaper and easier to stage because it's mm-hmm. it's much more of a reading than it is a um, a, a play. It doesn't it doesn't have necessarily scenery and things like that. So it's, it's easier and cheaper to put on. And because the texts are in English and the stories are mostly familiar Bible stories, it's much more accessible to middle-class people than Italian operas were. Because if you didn't speak Italian, I, maybe they'd print the libretto in the, in the book, but if you didn't speak Italian, you're going to have a hard time following the Italian opera and the stories weren't familiar. So the oratorios are not only cheaper, they're, uh, they're more middle-class The music, um, instead of being influenced by Italian opera, was influenced by English composers like Henry Purcell, who's really the first noteworthy English composer. Um, Opera emphasizes arias, and those are accompanied solo singers. There are some of those in The Messiah, for example, but oratorio, on the whole emphasizes choral singing, which can make it much more magnificent, and I think certainly more accessible to those of us who aren't super familiar with opera. I think, nice. I think it's easier for a non-opera fan to listen to The Messiah, for example, than even something like Carmen, which mm-hmm. I, I take to be the most accessible of all operas. Um, many of Handel's oh, libretti were written by Charles Jennings. Um, he was a landowner, uh, an eccentric, and an advocate of returning to the practices of the early church. He was very, very involved to the, to the extent that he actually edited some of the music of of Handel's oratorios, he was he he did not just write the lyrics and then hand them over to hand them over to Handel. Uh, Messiah was written in twenty four days. The music was uh, beginning on August twenty second, seventeen forty one. Handel always wrote quickly. Um, he was able to do so in part because he he openly stole melodies from himself and from other people it was not really looked down upon at the time uh he stole a a melody i can't remember the guy's name but he stole a melody from from somebody and he said well it's better in my hands than in his (laughs) um so let me give you an example um for unto us a child is born from the messiah that that melody comes from one of his italian duets and even the hallelujah chorus is a reworking of a chorus from one of his operas uh, a drinking song at that so maybe, maybe the Almond Joy commercials or whatever aren't, uh, aren't really profaning the song as much as we imagine them to. <laughs> Plus, Handel would have loved Almond Joy. <laughs> he worked at the Messiah nonstop during those 24 days. He didn't eat, he didn't sleep. Oh, I mean, obviously he ate and slept, but he skipped a bunch of meals and didn't sleep much. He wrote until his fingers could no longer hold the pen, according to one of his servants. Um, And Hmm. the oratory ended up premiering in Dublin in April 1742. It was a packed crowd uh, to the point where women were told to wear hoopless skirts and men were told not to wear their swords so that there was more room in the hall. And even then, people pressed against the building from the outside looking through the windows. Um, it was very favorably received. Here's a, here's a quote from the Dublin Journal at the time. Words are wanting to express the exquisite delight it afforded to the admiring, crowded audience. The sublime, the grand, and the tender, adapted to the most elevated, majestic, and moving words, conspired to transport and charm the ravished heart and ear. So this is one of the, probably one of the few great pieces that was immediately received as great. It has been popular since the first time it was performed. I, my guess is uh it's not going to lose that popularity anytime soon mm-hmm. did that answer enough questions plus some you didn't ask david
0: oh yeah absolutely <laughs> I, I i appreciate that i there's the um the luster of of, of history of something having been um of something had, having been a kind of this this revered cultural artifact long long before one was born that Uh, creates a mystique about it um, that a a little bit of history maybe doesn't completely dispel, but at least helps you to think underneath. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's
3: also the recent transformation in the place of opera in at least American culture. I I can't speak of European culture necessarily, but uh, opera in the 21st century is something for people of a certain social standing with a certain degree of wealth who attended a certain kind of college uh, so, I mean, it's difficult for me, at least, to imagine it as the popular entertainment that would have recently gone out of favor.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not a scholar of this period, but I'm not sure Italian opera was ever, like, the popular enta- ent- entertainment. Uh-huh. The, the sense, Point taken. Point the sense taken. I got is mm-hmm. that this was an upper-class um, pastime. Now, the Oratorio, that is a that is a middle-class entertainment.
3: Right, and then right. There,
1: I mean, it's you might think of it like going to a Christmas Eve service or something like that. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. Well, I guess I'm just thinking, and again, I'm probably thinking of stories from Italy about Italian opera, but just the gambling and the prostitution and the hard <laughs> drinking and just all of the things that surrounded opera in its heyday. That you know, we we think of as you know, folks at the very least doing those things behind closed doors in the 21st century.
0: Right. I. I I wonder whether the popularity of Italian opera in England was also affected by the fact that they'd already, in the generation before with Purcell, um, had English opera, mm-hmm. um, you know, Dido and Aeneas and 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 others, where uh, they were all they already had opera in in the vernacular, and then this guy shows up with with the stuff from the continent, and they're like, I mean, yeah, but. We don't speak that. <laughs> well, they, they liked it for a while. I mean, Handel yeah. Handel
1: became famous doing these. It's just taste changed. I mean, like like, like I right. said, once once the Beggars Opera uh, premiered, I, I I think people started to understand that the conventions of Italian opera were kind of silly. Ah.
3: Mm-hmm. they. they I,
1: I think I think it felt artificial. I don't know how much you how much experience you have with the Beggars Opera. Mm-hmm. Um. The the. Wait, have you seen at least the Three Penny Opera? Nope. Okay, it's a popular song. Mac the Knife comes from the Three Penny Opera.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh right, so, right, right,
1: right. So, right. it's it's an opera, but it's not highfalutin really in any way. It's about mm-hmm. a it's about a like murderous thug,
4: mm-hmm. right?
1: So, I, I I don't know. I I don't know enough about opera to to tell you much more than I've told you. I. Mm-hmm. I would like to like opera more than I do. I'm afraid,
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, it, it was it wasn't it wasn't a popular entertainment. Right.
3: Mm-hmm. No, I, I take your correction, Michael, and I I, th- I think I spoke about English things when I was thinking of Italian.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we associate. Messiah with Christmas at least I always have and I I feel like that's probably pretty common too um but it wasn't composed at Christmas or for Christmas it wasn't performed then it's not even mainly about the Christmas story at least in terms of the 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 scope of it that we focus on these days with nativity scenes and reading Luke chapter 2 and all that sort of thing Mm -hmm. um so what is the full scope of Messiah's three parts? If you could give us a quick framework to hang our conversation on.
3: Certainly. Uh, as David noted, this is a an oratorio in three parts. It largely consists of sung Bible verses, and we're going to spend some time as we roll along here talking about individual passages uh, from the three parts. But the first one uh, largely consists of... Uh, bible passages that might not necessarily appear in advent lectionaries but you still think of them as advent passages these are coming of christ passages these are the coming day of the lord passages Uh, and it culminates in you know some songs about the nativity itself uh so i mean the i'm trying to think here you know the main upshot of that first part is expectation, just like it would be for any sort of Advent production. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second part, just to kind of rattle these off fairly quickly, uh, begins with a number of biblical passages that point to the resurrection. Again, we're talking about largely uh, Old Testament passages that you know you would expect to find in the patrici- patristic writers, Augustine's writing. Uh, you would expect to find in, you know, really kind of, you know, Lenten and Easter week services in a liturgical tradition like the Church of England. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third part uh, ultimately deals with the resurrection, the general resurrection, that is to say, uh, because part two, which I didn't mention earlier, uh, points to not only the death of Christ, but also the rising again of Christ uh, and to, to some extent the church militant. And we'll talk about that, you know, as we... Roll along today. Uh, but what you get in this you know grand, as we said before, two and a half hour production are sung versions of largely Old Testament passages that Handel uses you know as a sort of image vocabulary, if you will, to tell the story of Jesus. So it's not by any means strictly a nativity story, uh, although it certainly includes the Nativity, it's not exclusively an Easter story although it certainly includes Easter, but it is broad enough in scope to encompass uh, really the expectation of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the rising of Christ, and the expectation of Christ to come again. So it's really kind of the church year in two and a half hours. Hmm. Um, and, David, that, that that's a very brief version. Are there any, any other bits that we can do without strip mining the rest of our show?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, just, just emphasizing that, uh, Messiah, if, 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 if you see Messiah as part of your Christmas, um, it's, it's, it's either because you're, you're limiting yourself to part one, uh, huh, or, um, if you're taking in the whole of Messiah, it's, it's preventing your, your, your Christmas, um, your narrative observance of Christmas, shall we say, from becoming, uh, I, I guess, narratively parochial, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, which uh, which I think is 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 interesting.
3: Although to some extent, I mean, it really kind of begins and ends on an Advent sort of note. So right. I mean, I think you could make a case for uh, part three as having a spirit of Advent at the very least to it.
0: Yeah, yeah no, I sometime. Yeah. <laughs> well, but it I mean it wasn't, you know, again, wasn't wasn't written for then, wasn't performed then. But, yeah, no, right. It, and
4: right. It, yeah, it was performed at Easter.
0: But, doesn't, but, but doesn't, uh,
1: Christmas is the time of year when it's appropriate for people to hear religious music in this culture? Y-
0: yes. Yes, and a cappella groups to record it, you know. Um, so Michael we should turn to specifics so as not to you know so that our discussion of the general does not turn into too many spoilers um, <laughs> Messiah opens with an instrumental movement which leads to the first solo vocal performance um, comfort you my people uh, I find this opening incredibly moving every time every time I begin to listen to Messiah as soon as I get to that beginning point um, Uh, It's it I'm just gripped. So what is happening in this uh, in this opening musically? What's happening here lyrically? Uh, How is it preparing us for part one and for Messiah as a whole?
1: That movement comes right after the minor key Sinfonia, um, which is very stern at the beginning. And then it morphs into what I think of as a very typical Baroque style, lots of counterpoint. And, mm-hmm. and maybe that Sinfonia um, suggests the pretext to the Messiah's text. The sternness is the fall of man, the Baroque sections of the machinery of the world as it progresses through the centuries. Um, it's all minor key. And then it drops into a kind of sweet sadness right before the vocal cuts in, which is where we picked it up just now. Uh, That vocal is a powerhouse performance. It's the first human voice we hear in the oratorio, and it's the voice of God mediated through the prophet Isaiah. And we hear it as good news. We hear it as comfort. And the key, importantly, has changed from E minor to E major. So some things might be the same. The overall structure of the world hasn't changed, but the overall meaning or tone of the world is different, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, The music stops, you noticed, I'm sure, right after the tenor first sings Comfort Ye, which suggests that the news we're going to receive will change the fabric of the world. The text is an interesting choice. Isaiah has lots of openly messianic texts. This isn't really... One of them, from an Isaiah perspective, and Nathan, you can correct me if what I say here is utterly buffoonish. Comfort, here's the text. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her, that your warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare yet the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's Isaiah forty one through 3. Mm-hmm. The New Testament uses the phrase, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, to refer to John the Baptist coming before Christ. Right. But I, I, I don't think that Isaiah's original hearers would have thought that this proclamation referred to the Messiah in particular. And that means that Jennings specifically chose a text whose meaning would be clear only in retrospect. And he's also chosen a text in which the Messiah could not be mistaken for a political leader. He mm. he, he has to be God himself based on this text. So in a weird way, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of room for confusion depending on where you're standing, or there's absolutely no room for confusion. Mm -hmm. What happens next? Yeah, go ahead,
3: please. Oh, I was just going to comment on what you just said. I mean, you know, throughout this oratorio, uh, the Old Testament in general, not just the prophets, are uh, joyfully read as typological texts. Uh, So, I mean, these are placed in, in such a way that, you know, Uh, they might make an Old Testament studies professor twitch a bit, uh, (laughs) but in their context and in their moment uh, and in this oratorio, I mean, you know, there's no sense that, you know, Handel is at all apologizing for reading them typologically. It's just how the Bible works in this work. Uh, So, I mean, is this, you know, one of the texts that people, or let, let me put it this way, is this one that, you know, people would necessarily point to and say oh look, you know, Isaiah is looking for a singular Messiah, not necessarily but it certainly has the the flavor of expectation that Advent flavor that sets up things for the later more explicitly Messianic text Right Mm
1: -hmm. And then what happens next I think might even be more important because there's another passage from Isaiah 40 and then there's the first big choral passage in the oratory I hear it, Handel tends to use Aria and recitative, recitative being like spoken word, mm-hmm. um, he, he, he uses that as a way to build up to these big choral explosions that typify his oratorios. So so the most powerful moments in in the Messiah and his other oratorios, for that matter, the only other one I know is Saul, tend to come after several movements of Aria or recitative. And, and, and certainly we're getting... And, and that's what you would expect from a from a section of the oratorio that's all about Advent, right? Because we are, we are waiting for the glory of the Lord to be revealed, and when it is revealed, it is appropriate enough glorious.
0: Mm. What would you want to add, Nathan?
3: Uh, not a whole lot. I mean, I, just a, a, a quick bit of background that I, I'm i pretty sure Michael said earlier, but I can't remember him saying it, so I'll repeat Michael with apologies. But, uh, you know, <laughs> if you hear the name, you know, Handel and you think okay this must be a german work that you know later on gets translated into english it's not i mean these are simply mm-hmm. verses from the king james bible being sung uh in the style of you know a, a sort of post-operatic oratorio so you know when you hear all these terms uh the aria the recitative is how i was taught to pronounce it but i, I like michael's a little bit better fewer syllables um These are, you know, very much the conventions of continental opera brought to bear on the text of the King James Bible. So, you know, all of these very typological readings of Isaiah and of the Psalms and of, you know, Malachi and so on and so forth, punctuated with some actual New Testament text. These are all verses that, you know, at least in the 18th century would have fallen familiar on the ears of the audience uh, what what I read when I was kind of re- prepping for this episode is that a lot of 21st century and even late 20th century productions will actually have a sort of miniature commentary on the Bible verses for those people who don't have a re- religious background. Uh, but again, in its moment and in its context, it is simply what you hear read at church but sung. Mm.
0: Cool. One of the things that I find uh, that that retro retroactively, and obviously this is a thought that I didn't have, you know, growing up with this piece, but mm-hmm. something that I've had more recently is the the um, the the way that the coming of Messiah and all the rest of, and 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 uh, the rest of the of the piece is situated uh, alongside of the prophet's comfort to Israel in exile. And that, and that being something that, um, you know, what 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 I've heard of of N T Wright and folk like that, um, that that exile theme is is something that I guess I've be, i become more attentive to, um, mm-hmm. you know, in in my reading of Bible, and now when I return to Messiah, I find it I find it already there, um, <laughs> in 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 ways that. Uh, I, I guess, confirm the importance of paying attention to that.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and toot my own horn here, but I mean, that was the upshot of my own doctoral dissertation is that artists, uh, and I focus mainly on the 17th century, not, not on the 18th, but they were doing things theologically that the theological academy wouldn't catch up to until the 20th century.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, We'll uh, transition to part two. Uh, Part two is Messiah's version of Christ's passion, Mm -hmm. Um, burial, resurrection, ascension, all of those, uh, the kind of culminating second part of (laughs) Apostles Creed stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet there are only five passages in this whole part that are actually taken from the New Testament. One from John 1, two from Hebrews, one from Romans, one from Revelation. And three of those are New Testament quotes of the Old Testament.
3: (laughs) Right, right.
0: So what work, exegetically, canonically, Christologically, theologically, whatever other Achilles you want to throw in there, (laughs) um, is part two accomplishing with these moves. How is is Jennings teaching us to read Bible?
3: Well, first of all, there's no explicit exegesis here because it is simply an arrangement of Bible verses. Right. Uh, exegesis, you know, reads a passage and then says, "Pay attention to how this bit relates to this bit because it will re- reveal that this overarching structure uh, shoots through this passage." So there's not a, you know, really any of that there. However, the arrangement itself, uh, the fact that you begin with John and you end with what's traditionally attributed to the same John, Revelation. Uh, I think there might have been more than four guys named John in the first century, but that's a debate not related to Handel. Uh, (laughs) But what you get there is a, I mean, what biblical scholars call an inclusio. Uh, You get John at the beginning and at the end of this movement, uh, but in between the vocabulary, the images, Uh, The stuff of the oratorio really comes from the prophets, from the Psalms. And once again, as we mentioned earlier, I mean, this is a joyously figurative and typological reading of the Old Testament. So uh, I use figurative there as a a brief tip of the hat to Richard Hayes, who I've interviewed about his last two books. Mm -hmm. Uh, He insists that, you know, this figural reading, as he calls it, is not identical with a simple prediction, so that you know Isaiah really was concerned with things going on in the 8th century from chapters 1 to 39, and then the prophet is very much concerned with things of the 6th century in yeah. chapters 40 to 55. But in the, in the wake, if you will, of the Christ event, uh, these things take on new meaning. So it's this old doctrine of census plenior, the added meaning uh, cast in a new key. The way that Handel handles handles these things, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, I, I couldn't say Handle handles, uh, <laughs> uh, is that, you know, as Michael was pointing out earlier, uh, you get these arias and these recitatives building up to these grand choral hits, uh, is what I tend to call them. And, you know, the most famous one, the, the one that you have heard, even if you've heard nothing else, uh... in this thing is the hallelujah chorus drawn from revelation at the end once again you know completing this inclusio beginning with the gospel of john ending up with the revelation of john uh, and in between demonstrating that all of these phrases at the very least have a figurative meaning in the wake of the passion of the christ uh, that point you to a continuity there. And this continuity, really, David, I mean, is what I noticed this time prepping for this episode. Because before, I'll admit, um, you know, I I paid attention to this oratorio in college when I had to. And then after that, it's been largely kind of, you know, background music while I've done other things. Uh, But I really noticed this go around that you get, in the second movement especially, uh, a strong sense of... These prophets, you know, once again, giving shape to a world. I mean, this is a world where there is sorrow and there is darkness and so on and so forth. But after the crucifixion of Christ, the depth of that darkness, immediately you get not a New Testament passage narrating the uh, resurrection of Christ, but you get a quotation from the Psalms, you know. Um, uh, But thou didst not leave his soul in hell, nor didst thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. We get from a soloist and then the big chorus number, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be you lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Uh, So the vocabulary, once again, I know I'm kind of repeating this, but it bears repeating, uh, derives from the Psalms in a way that points to a strong continuity between the God that we call the God of the Old Testament and the God that we call the God of the New Testament, of course, the actual New Testament writers simply would have known this figure as God, as with <laughs> the Patristic writers, as would Augustine, as with the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, this is a a piece of music that reminds us, if our biblical studies class has tempted us to forget it, that the Old and New Testaments uh, do comprise for the Christian faithful a continuous story of God and God's people. Mm-hmm. Um, David, anything else you you would add to that? Because you're you you've spent more time with this than i have
0: well one thing to note and this is just building on uh building on what you've already uh, what you've already pointed to especially in your references to richard hayes is that most of these prophets uh at least m- most of these passages as i'm just kind of you know sort of scanning through the the libretto from mm. you know from isaiah from psalms um our Psalms, are uh, portions of the Prophets, that the New Testament writers actually do reference, right, um, in this in this context. So it's not Charles Jennings just kind of like wandering through the text of the Old Testament, um, plucking quotable quotes that he thinks sound Jesusy. <laughs> <laughs> he he is uh, he's intentionally following the lead uh, of the New Testament writers in. In going back and reading the Old Testament um, in in this particular way, what he's doing is, for the most part, with the exception of the of the Hebrews quotes and the Romans quotes, mm-hmm. uh, he is omitting the New Testament writers who serve as the middle term, right? Um, and and pulling it straight from uh, straight from the Old Testament source. Um, but again. Uh, it, it was kind of fun. If if at the beginning of part one, I kept thinking of N.T. Wright and and exile as part of the the gospel message. <laughs> um, part two, I kept thinking I, I kept thinking of Richard Hayes. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, we should say something about uh, the the, Hallelu, the hallelujah chorus that ends part three. Uh, if there's anything in part, the side, right? sorry, sorry, End of part two pardon uh at the end of part two <laughs> it's the bit that everyone knows right mm-hmm. uh and we and we made some uh, references to that at the beginning of the episode so michael what does the hallelujah course course mean in its context and what kinds of meanings has it taken on when we rip it out of that context and and why do we stand up <laughs> <laughs>
1: Handel wrote it. He said, "I did think I did see all heaven before me, and the great God Himself." So he had a religious experience uh, in the face of this piece he wrote, which, uh, not to not to beat a dead horse, but was a drinking song from uh, from one of his uh, one of his previous works. Uh, it's not a Christmas piece, and it's not an Easter piece either. Um, I think sometimes people think, "Well, yeah, it's not a Christmas piece, but it's about." The resurrection, but it's not. Um, Jinnan's called the right. section "God's Triumph," and it actually depicts the second coming of Christ and not a gentle second coming. The aria just before it is, "Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron." If that gives you some mm-hmm. idea, um, we are listening to the end of all human time here, and the text from Revelation reads, "The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever." forever that that split in the the fabric of things that is promised in comfort you my people when the music stops uh here it has come to fruition except instead of the music stopping the music comes in as you know as big and as loud and as brash as anything else in the oratorio Mm
4: -hmm, mm mm-hmm
1: The, uh, the standing. Um, Messiah's first London performance was in 1743. Uh, King George II is said to have been so moved during the Hallelujah Chorus that he rose to his feet. The rest of the audience followed, and now all audiences follow. Uh, Swafford presents that as if it's true. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's true or not. Like, David, you, you cast <laughs> some doubt on it when we
4: were talking before the show.
0: I I, you know, as I was poking around, I read some things that were like, know, oh, don't, we don't know if he was there. We don't know if he was there or not. Um, apparently there's some, there's a, there's a letter, uh, that refers to George II being there at this particular performance and standing up, but it was written 43 years after the fact. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, we, we 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 don't have we don't have you know <laughs> a diarist like Peeps or someone like like on site like like dear diary went to went to, went to Messiah. George stood up. Everyone else stood up too. It was awkward. Um, we, we we don't have the smoking gun, as it were, um, but th- there has to be something to account for it um because there's nothing in the libretto that says and now all stand. <laughs> right, it's it's not like that 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 music minister move when they kind of like turn around and raise their hands at, you know, the the congregation and says, "Now you stand <laughs> up and join." Um by the way, you know, do
1: people people sing along with this typically, right? In in audiences?
0: I don't know. Um I always do, but that's because I know it. It's, I mean, for the same reason that I stand, actually, for the same reason that I sing along with the Star Spangled Banner Banner when it plays at sports events.
1: But I mean, everybody knows. Because I know the word. Everybody knows the one part. I
4: mean, there's there's more to the
1: Hallelujah chorus than just the Hallelujah part. But I I was thinking, I was thinking it was a convention for everybody to sing along. But I don't. I've never been to a performance.
0: Yeah, Hmm. yeah. Uh, You know, I, I I don't know the answer to that one, but but we stand up. Um, without the George II story, why why do we stand up? I guess I've already tipped my cards as to why I stand up.
1: We stand up because this is the part everybody knows.
0: Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yay, we know it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe that doesn't hold universally across mm-hmm. across uh, classical music, but. I used to go to the Cornerstone Music Festival, uh, which is the big kind of Christian alternative festival. It, used, it doesn't exist anymore. But I remember seeing Sixpence None the Richer there once on the main stage. About halfway through their set, they played Kiss Me. And everybody left after that. Oh, they, le- <laughs> they, they left because that was the one they knew. You know? And they're standing oh, at the... That's the one they came for. <laughs> they're standing at the Hallelujah Chorus because until they hear the Hallelujah Chorus, they don't feel like they have heard the Messiah, even though it's, what, two minutes out of two and a half hours?
4: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and in some ways, not the most important piece. hmm But mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's the one you hear from the commercial. It's, it's, right. It's why it's why when you go to a comedy in the movie theater, everybody laughs the loudest at the lines they've all heard a
3: hundred times in the commercials.
0: Right, right. Yeah, yeah, they're Let's like, see, ah, I'm now not. we see that joke in context. ha, 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 ha.
3: Right. And see, David, I'm more agnostic about it. I, I'm I, I tend to think that at some point, people started standing for it, and then you know, 40 years later, someone basically made up an explanation for why people started. <laughs> uh, just because, I mean, I, I, I've seen so many, you know, social customs go that direction.
0: <laughs> you know, that, that that's possible. Um, I mean, I, all I know is that. I, I was I was taught to stand when the Hallelujah chorus begins. That that uh-huh. we stand for the Hallelujah chorus. I was I was taught that without explanation,
4: mm-hmm.
0: you know, and and for someone who's from an emphatically low church background, in which standing and sitting and kneeling and um, uh, responsive liturgy things like that were absolutely not part of my formative years in Christian worship, right? Um, but my body knows what to do when the hallelujah, when the hallelujah chorus starts. And I might be cynical about the explanation for it. Um, or about, you know, uh, uh, other reasons connected to it. But I keep, I, I keep running in like, you know, um, you know, James K. Smith directions um, mm-hmm. when, when I think about what role that that bodily response um, plays in, in in my own life.
3: That's fair enough. That's fair enough. And I, I think of it as just part of the grammar of a performance of it, that that's where people stand mm-hmm. up. Right. And, uh, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, just historically, ling- historical linguistically, I don't think that's an adverb, but I just made it one. Yeah. Um, you've got these moments like, you know, I mean, the one that I always point to because I I got fooled by this for, gosh, had to be twenty years. Is uh, you know, I was told that you know one of the Looney Tune kings of England and I can't remember which one, uh, was was dubbing everyone knights and he even dubbed his favorite cut of steak a knight and thus it became sirloin. Uh. Then, you know, here just a few years ago, you know, I I ran across an explanation that says no, it was basically a a mispronounced French butcher's term that, you know, became sirloin in English. That makes more like, sense oh, to that's me. Not nearly, that, that's not nearly as fun.
0: <laughs> not sirloin. <laughs> no, not, not nearly as fun. <laughs> not nearly as fun. Well, I, I, I like that little, I, I, I happen to like that little bit of that little bit of Christian culture, even e- maybe even better without the explanation. Um, cause mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those things that makes a culture, a culture that there are things that everybody just knows that this is what we do um, I, I, I think that's I, I think it's pretty neat well parts one and two are Old Testament heavy but the only into Old Testament in part three is from of all things the book of Job yes indeed <laughs> so what on earth, what is Messiah in this broad Christian tradition that we've been talking about? What does Messiah find in Job that lays the groundwork for the rest of part three?
3: Well, let me say a quick word about the rest of part three first. I mean, it, it begins with that uh, quotation from Job. It ends with uh, more revelation because, you know, what else would you end a movement of Messiah with? Uh, But in between, really, it only pulls from two chapters of St. Paul, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, which you'd expect Mm -hmm. for an oratory about the resurrection, and then Romans 8, another logical place. So, I mean, this one is much briefer uh, than the other two movements. Uh, But to address Job, here is where, again, my uh, master's degree in biblical studies just makes me twitch uh, every time a a modern (laughs) guitar and drum set praise band uses this passage from job for this purpose uh but because you know like david i appreciate living in a culture i can forgive honda a little bit more um (laughs) is that you know read in the context of the middle chapters of job uh job here is raging against whatever invisible being did this to his family did this to his property did this to his body and he invokes a phrase uh, out of Leviticus and Numbers The Goel Hadam, the redeemer of blood uh, And you know He says that even if God kills me, which you know He said you know, really since chapter 3 of Job Is what he expects, right? I mean that's the only thing left That God's just going to strike him down And he says specifically that you know He's not like a tree where you can cut off a limb And it'll grow back uh, He's not like the grass that dies in the winter But rises again in the spring Once he's dead, he's dead. So, you know, reading this passage in that context, you know, I mean, this is Job saying, when God kills me, or whenever this invisible being kills me, because in chapter 19, it gets kind of ambiguous, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not even sure that it's God that's doing this to me. And I tell my students when I teach this book, this is the one part of Job where I think he might have, at least an intimation that there's some other entity that we call Hasatan involved in this thing,
4: mm-hmm.
3: but none of that matters when you watch the Messiah, <laughs> uh, because we get the word Redeemer in English, and when we hear Redeemer, we think Jesus, as we should, because Jesus is the one who redeems. Uh, we're not looking for people to avenge us, you know, when we've been murdered. We're looking for someone to forgive our sins, uh, and so we get, you know, this wonderful passage that really becomes more wonderful when you completely ignore its context in the original book. Uh, And the passage is thus, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. And again, if you take that verse as an island, uh, it is a wonderful vocabulary. It's a wonderful image uh, for the resurrection at the coming again of christ that we saw happen in the hallelujah chorus uh so i mean as far as you know is this something that would pass muster in the journal of biblical literature new no. uh <laughs> is this you know really good typological context can you know take a hike kind of bible reading yes uh do i still get twitchy when someone with an acoustic guitar does this to the book of job yes do I still think it's wonderful that Handel does it? Yes. Do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict myself.
1: Will I continue to ask myself questions and then answer them? Yes, I will.
0: <laughs> what do you think? What do you think, Michael?
1: Oh, you know, <laughs> Nathan is the uh, Nathan is the the biblical scholar here. I I don't think I ever would have thought anything of it. It's basically because of that song, "My Redeemer Lives." Uh, uh, which I knew long before I knew Nathan, and
3: uh, <laughs> patiently allowed
1: Nathan to rip apart on numerous occasions. I think on this very podcast,
3: I, I very well might have. it. It's one of my favorite rants, and uh, you know what? What kills me is when I teach this book. You know, we read it from chapter one, verse one, all the way to the end, and students still want to go Jesus on this passage. I'm like, no, 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 context, context. Let's <laughs> let's look at how it fits inside the book. And then you can go pick up your guitar and sing your song that mangles it again, and I will go in another room. You know,
4: Mark Hurd. <laughs> Mark Hurd did a good
1: version of that song.
3: Okay.
0: Hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna stick up for this reading a little bit.
3: All right, go ahead. Um,
0: as, as someone who has like almost no Old Testament chops, <laughs> um, but I do know that that word go well is used in in the in the context of the Levitical law, yes, for Avengers of blood, mm-hmm. um, but it is also used for uh, uh, a, a kinsman or a friend who steps up and advocates for those who are helpless that mm-hmm. the strong are pushing around and are denying their rights.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: And there, uh, there's at least one other passage in Job where he wishes that there was someone who could serve as a go-between between him and God to advocate for his case, because who can call God into court? He can't. He wishes—all he wishes is that he could have his day in court and that right. he could have a lawyer who could actually lawyer for him before God. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I'm not going to you know just immediately leap from that and say, well, clearly— Clearly, Job is talking about Jesus. Um, But I do think that this is one of those cases where we could, where as a Christian, I can look at what the New Testament tells me Jesus is and does, and -hmm. I can look at Job and say that the kind of thing that Job might be wishing for here is the kind of thing that Jesus is for me.
3: Okay, all right. And my, my main objection to that, David, is that in this very passage, as quoted by Handel, Mm. He is envisioning a day after he has already been killed. Right. Which earlier in the book of Job, he says, is pretty much the end. Because
0: you don't come back.
3: You well, know, it, as, as as Mick you know. and Rocky says, as the Bible says, you don't get no second chances.
0: Well, I mean, he says that, but then you've still got that. I mean, I know, I know that the New Testament, or uh, the King James renders it, in my flesh I shall see God. And there's something, uh-huh. I, I know that there's something wonky in the Hebrew there, which I will not. I, I don't have the chops to speak to, but again, there's something wonky there. Maybe he, maybe he contradicts himself.
3: Okay, all right, listeners, uh, you <laughs> can be the judge here, and, and let let us hear about it on Facebook because, yeah. uh, you know, I, I want to see who's on team Grubs here and uh, yeah, who's on team Bible. I don't want to
0: deny. <laughs> yeah, hey, I don't want to <laughs> deny. I am not denying the nihilism that is in Job. But um, I think there are definitely parts of declarations, even by the same speaker within Job, that don't necessarily fit systematically together. All right. All right. So, (laughs) I mean, anyway. Maybe. Maybe. Whatever. Anyways. well, Well, As I
3: said, just to reiterate, (sighs) folks, I really love it when Handel does what he does with it.
0: Yeah well it, it 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 it's it's another one of those um, uh, what it what is in Christ becomes becomes the answer to the longing of an ancient saint,
3: oh, sure, sure. I mean, if you want to read it, you know, in that figurative way that you know Richard Hayes writes so nicely about, do go ahead, uh, you know, i I also want to keep hold of though that strong sense in Job that the desperation has grown so deep that Mm -hmm. he's longing for not his own salvation, but a redemption that comes after he's already food for worms.
0: Right. Right. I I want to have both. (laughs) (laughs) Alright. I think I I do too, but maybe in a different way. Alright, fair enough. (laughs) Well, before we, before this disintegrates into a in, into a Hal how, how Grubbs and Gilmore um, Bible read argument um, <laughs> where does Messiah belong in the canon of Western music and in the canon of Christian art and what do Christians today gain from making it a regular part of their lives Michael
1: I would say as I said earlier that the hallelujah chorus is all but unlistenable not because it's bad um, but because we've heard it out of context so many times that we can't hear it anymore um Mm. i I, sure i compared it earlier to uh, the fifth symphony i'm not sure anybody has listened to the fifth symphony in a hundred years it's too familiar Mm -hmm. to hear with that in mind i strongly
3: and and for that matter the ninth symphony the the ode to
1: joy yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) with with that in mind I, i strongly encourage you to go listen to the other parts of, of, the, uh, mm. of the Messiah which are beautiful and um, much less familiar and perhaps even mm-hmm. unexpected and they might even be able to get familiar texts of the Bible across to you in a way that uh, you wouldn't encounter them if you just read them so I do think it's still an important work it's arguably the most important British work of classical music in history I, I'm not I'm not sure I'm the one qualified to make that call, but I think a lot of people make it. Um, so it's, mm-hmm. it's important not just for the Christian artistic tradition, but also for you know the Anglo-Saxon um, artistic tradition. But it can be difficult to hear the most famous parts of it, so go listen to the rest of it. And if that doesn't work, go listen to something like Saul, uh, which is equally grounded in Scripture, but much less familiar, and you might actually be able to hear that one.
3: Mm-hmm. cool Nathan? And I'll take what Michael said and, I, and just say that you know the reason that Michael is right there is precisely what he mentioned earlier in the episode that Handel has this sensitivity for the rhetorical movement of a text uh, when a text is in a moment of darkness and of expectation and, and perhaps even of lament uh, we get a very restrained, a very quiet a very plaintive call in this oratorio that is followed up by these moments of great triumph. So if you've had your intro to Bible and you know the structure of a lament psalm, hopefully you recognize what I just recited as the sort of standard structure with obvious variations in the Psalter uh, of the initial complaint, the narrative of the situation, the turn towards confidence in God, and then the proclamation of faithful expectation. Uh, These are things that, You can pick up when you read it, and you should pick up when you read it, and you should read it after you pick it up. Uh, But it's something that, once again, when you put it alongside an orchestra and alongside a chorus, uh, it really does become a different kind of art, and you really do experience it uh, with another dimension added when you listen to Messiah. So, uh, David, what would you add to all that?
0: I, I think there's a real good in continuing to preserve and develop a taste for um, these uh, older contributions of past generations of Christians um, to the the artistic celebration, digestion, understanding um, of Christian truth. Um, yes, we need to keep it fresh in the art of our own time. Um, but, uh, there is a, uh, there is a, 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 long tradition as well that, um, that I think rewards our engagement and more importantly, it makes us part of this, um, this larger historical people of God and Messiah is one of those things. Um, now I don't think that Messiah is the only one of those things because then, then you know, uh, I've, I've somehow confused, you know, the church universal with 18th century England, mm. which which I don't want to do.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but this is this is part of it. Right. This is this is this is part of it. And I think that's I think it's good for our historical sense. Very but I, I also like um, what you said, Nathan, about the um, the the consolation, um, uh, the 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 psalm that, that psalm move from from desolation to consolation. Um mm-hmm. and for me, and these are these are my recommendations, um listening to the first piece of part one, Comfort Ye My People, and the last uh the last solos of the first solo of of part one, Comfort Ye My People, and the last um Solos. Um, he shall feed feed his flock like a shepherd, um, mm-hmm. which blends Isaiah forty with uh, with Matthew eleven. It's uh, it's just so lovely, and the 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 warfare, the burden of warfare, and the burden of iniquity um, that's talked about in part one. He, he returns to that same chapter of an Isaiah and talks about this this is what it looked like when looks like when God comes and gives you that comfort that you need and then he blends that right into Matthew 11 um, it's 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 just lovely and it's the kind of thing that I think um, can tune Christian souls to what what gospel ought to feel like we'll that is all we have for today's episode. Um, for our Christmas episode, we wish you all, um, a, a good rest of your, uh, let's see how much of, won't be much of Advent season less uh, left by the time this drops, but you mm-hmm. know, st- mm-hmm. still a little, still a little bit left. Five days. Um, and, and, yeah, Enjoy your five days of Advent before, before Christmas <laughs> comes. Um, uh, if, uh, if you are part of a congregation that will be uh, worshiping on the Lord's Day and Christmas as well,